Well, as we uh, pick back up from last week, right, we, we looked last week at, at the identity of a Christian, what it means to be a part of the royal priesthood, and yet we stopped short of being able to really explore the, the, uh, the other side of that, the responsibilities. Just as we said, any identity that we have in this life, any role that we have has corresponding responsibilities. And so is the case when we are in Christ, when we are Christians or as we saw last week, as part of the royal priesthood. So as I begin, I'd like to put this into a context that may, that may sound a little strange, but it would be a little different from the context we find ourselves in right now. Uh, here we are in an established uh, setting, an established church setting. Maybe you find that, that your role here among us is, is very established. Well, what if you found yourself in a different setting? How would your identity and the responsibilities that flow out of your calling as a Christian, what would they look like in a different setting? A different setting such as if you were part of a group from our church that decided to go on a little trip. Let's say you had an opportunity to be on a cruise ship together, and it wasn't going to be a long trip. Maybe it was just going to be a short trip. Maybe even one of those infamous three-hour tours kind of trips, right? And, uh, and you're, you're on this ship, and the, as it goes, the weather started getting rough, right? And then all of a sudden, the cruise ship finds itself in, in a territory that it wasn't expecting. And before you know it, you're on a desert island. Just picture that you're part of that group. Thankfully, everyone survives, but life is now starting over, right? And you're reestablishing life as it will be known going forward. And, and many of you gather each week and you begin to, to worship the Lord and you, you begin to, uh, uh, to sing and to pray and to, and to encourage each other from the word. But you realize you've been there a while and it's time to establish a church. So what will that look like as you Followers of Christ, members of the royal priesthood, what will it look like as you establish a church in a new setting? I, I offer that as an example, and we'll pick back up with that in just a minute. But to think, what is that responsibility? What does it look like for us as a church as we think about not only our identity, but our responsibilities? We didn't get to detail those last week. We took quite a bit of time all the way back from the Garden of Eden, moving through many different passages of the Old Testament to see how this identity of a royal priesthood should be understood. And if you weren't with us last week, I encourage you to go back, find that message. I think it's one that, that when we think about who we are in Christ, it's one that could be overlooked. It could be missed. And yet it's so rich and it's so helpful for us to understand not only who we are in Christ, but who we are in the church when we realize that we, you and I, Christ followers, are said to be part of a priesthood, a royal priesthood. You may not think of yourself in that context. I know at times we use phrases like the, the priesthood of the believer, and we recognize that, that we go straight to, to Christ. We don't have any other mediators in this world that we have to go through to, to approach Christ. And yet at the same time, the Bible uses this word priest, a kingdom of priests, to describe his church today. And we're going to take some time and to ask and consider what is meant by that. In fact, we were in 1 Peter 2 last week, verse 9. It says this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people 
for his possession. Now, let me just ask you, let's stop right there. Isn't that a great place to be in? To be a people of God's possession. This, my friends, is part of our identity. We belong to Christ. He holds us. Now, it's interesting because it says that there is a responsibility with that, that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And it goes on to explain, verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So here we see a passage, and we could look at many this morning, but this is one that describes the identity of a Christian with these terms. And I want to begin by just emphasizing that we are part of God's people, a possession of his. But it doesn't say this is something that just automatically happens. It it says that there was a time that we weren't part of his family, that we weren't part of his possession. And what's the difference? The difference is whether or not we have received his mercy, his mercy, his forgiveness. This is, these are words of the gospel that, that Christ wants to forgive us of our sins, be merciful towards us, to give us new life. In fact, the, the, the images that are, that are here in, in this text are that once we were in the darkness of sin, the bondage, the, the penalty, and now we've been rescued from that and we've been given a new life. And it's in the light of Jesus Christ that that we now walk. And and I just want to to express how important it is that we understand that this is the place to begin. There may be some among us today that have not yet experienced the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. And I want to urge you. I want to extend an invitation to you. That's where it begins. It begins by coming to Christ, recognizing who he is and what he has done for you so that your sins could be forgiven. And that from that, you are welcomed into his family and you get this new identity of being a part of a royal priesthood. And so maybe for some today that are with us or that are watching online, maybe maybe that's the place where you're starting, where it's time to, to find Christ And let him uh, uh, give you this new life and to be part of his family. But for those who have made that commitment, that have already made that decision to follow him, you you were brought into this understanding of being a a royal priesthood. And it makes sense because obviously if, if you're a possession of the king, you're a child of the king, and Jesus is the king of kings, the king of the world, obviously we understand the royal context there of being a child of the king. But we also are seeing that we are called priests. And we, we looked at this last week, and a, a priest is one who represents God. In the Old Testament times, there was even a priestly uh, uh, network. There was this, this, this group of priests, almost like a hierarchy of, of people that had this position that both represented God to the people, but they also represented the people to God. And they would even, even perform these sacrifices at the temple on behalf of the people before God, or they would speak to the people on behalf of God. And yet we saw last week that that in the coming of Christ, it was said that there would be a new 
covenant. That that old system, those old positions of being in the, this, this priestly network, they would go away. And there, there would no longer be a, a sacrificial system. Instead, Jesus would lay down his life as the Lamb of God. And once for all people, he would be that sacrifice and bring us to God. There would no longer be the need for, for sacrifices day after day, year after year. And in doing so, we are now entrusted with this idea of being priests. And I know you, 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 we look at that phrase. We, we saw last week how it flowed through so many different passages of the Old Testament, and now here it is. And now we ask, okay then, if I am part of this royal priesthood, what does it mean? What are my responsibilities? I'm going to go through these. Uh, in fact, the, the first couple of them I'm going to go through fairly quickly. We, we looked at them last week, but we'll, we'll look at them in greater detail today. And uh, we see that, that there are three. We represent Jesus and his gospel. And so that's the identity part. We looked at being in, created in the image of God, of displaying the image of God. And so now we as Christians represent Jesus to this world. We represent his gospel. Number two, we work, meaning that we witness, we proclaim, we expand his gospel work in this world. And number three, we watch or we watch over, meaning that we guard, we protect the dwelling place of God. And I'm going to commend to you that I think it's that third point that is the most least understood today. And I want to spend some time on it, because if indeed this is part of our job description, we as, as Christ followers should, should say, we want to understand it. We want to make sure we're not neglecting it. Obviously, if God gave us a job to do, it must be important, right? And, and we see that, that it's a job that, that corresponds to where God dwells today. Again, God used to dwell in the garden. He used to dwell in the tabernacle. He used to dwell in the temple. But under the new covenant, where does he dwell? He dwells in his people. And so we are called to, to care for, to watch over, to watch out for one another. And in this day and age, I would say that is certainly a role that we need to give some attention to. Well, let's quickly look at these three. The first two we'll look at very quickly, represent Jesus and his gospel. We spent some time on this already, but I want to give you another passage of scripture. And it's out of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, because as part of the royal priesthood, you are also given the title of ambassador. Think about that. You're an ambassador for the king of kings. Doesn't that do something as you think about your identity today? That you are an ambassador of Christ. Here's how it's explained in 2 Corinthians 5. Everything is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given, the, given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, not counting their sins against them. Again, the sins, the trespasses are what separate us from God. And so reconciliation is saying that God has done something to, to bring about a, a renewal in that relationship. And it's called reconciliation. 
And it says at the end of verse 19 that he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Verse 20, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Now, let me ask you, church family, does that message resonate with you today? Do you believe that the message of reconciliation to God is an important message? Have you yourself experienced this reconciliation? And in in experiencing that, you see that it just changes everything in life when you know that you've been forgiven of your sins, that you have been set free from the bondage, the penalty. All the, 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 the living in sin has, uh, weighs us down, holds us back. But in Christ, there is a freedom. There is a new life that's been given. And so it's all because of the reconciliation that Christ made at the cross between a holy God and sinful people. That's the ministry of reconciliation. And we are called to be ambassadors of it. Now, an ambassador is one who has been given some authority. And we're going to touch on the authority of the church today and the authority of Christians today in some ways that that may stretch some of us, that may may cause us to to, to really consider in a a very serious way what it means to have delegated authority. Let me give you an example. Suppose you're going to make a trip out of town and you know there's going to be some things in your house that that need to be taken care of while you're away. Uh, Maybe maybe the grass will need to be cut. Maybe someone will need to pick up the mail. Uh, Maybe someone needs to help get the trash can to the end of the the curb and back because you're not going to be there to do it. And so you are delegating some responsibility, right? Well, let's suppose that, that your trip's going to be really long, and that there's a lot going on in your life at this time, and you need someone that, that can do more than just that. And let's say you, you pick someone, and you sign a general power of attorney. And you're like, wow, that, that seems kind of extreme, right? I mean, you're just going on a trip out of town. Well, what does is, what is a general power of attorney do? It authorizes an individual to do what? To make decisions, right, on your behalf, to represent you in an authoritative way. You can make decisions. Well, when we think about being an ambassador, I think as Christians, we oftentimes limit what is being said in these passages. I think we, we're okay with the idea of, of, of being, being uh, given a few tasks to do, that, that we've been delegated some responsibility. But what about if Christ has said, I'm giving you authority? That's what we're going to be looking at today that may, for some of us, be something that, that is... Uh, expanding the way we view what it means to be a Christ follower in the church today. Well, we see that we represent him. We see, secondly, that we work for him. We witness and expand his kingdom. We noticed last week that Adam was given a mandate. Adam and Eve were told to be fruitful and multiply that God was was wanting them to create and to cultivate a garden. He gave them some some authority. Do you remember the words rule and subdue were given to them? They were the first examples of priest kings, as we saw last week. And so they, they have this responsibility. And then in Genesis 2, it says, the Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. Now, what does that mean for us today? 
If, if we see that throughout the ages, God has called upon a people to work and to watch over. Now, as we saw last week, there was a lot of changes through the Old Testament. And there were kings and there were prophets and there were priests. There were those that worked in the temple. They, they guarded, they watched over. Well, how does that happen today? We're going to consider that. Oftentimes, we, 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 we think about the mandate that we've been given, the Great Commission. And we see Adam and Eve were given the, the, the mandate to be fruitful and multiply. We've been, been given the mandate to go and make disciples, right? Matthew chapter 28, a disciple is one who is a believer in Jesus Christ, who is a follower in Jesus Christ. And once they make that decision, they are identified by being baptized. The baptism is a picture of what has happened. You think of the idea of, of being forgiven of your sins. Well, baptism represents the cleansing that has taken place. It identifies the person with the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They are identified in that. And so the Great Commission tells us that as disciples, we are to make disciples. And not just here in Wildwood or St. Louis or Missouri, but of all nations, we are to be involved in every capacity throughout this world as God leads us. Now, I want to note a couple of things about the Great Commission. First of all, did you notice in verse 18, it speaks of authority. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So the, the king of kings here is saying, I have authority, and I am telling you, go make disciples. Think about that authority. Think about that commission and, and how this doesn't come across as just some kind of a suggestion or maybe just something we might work in at some point. No, as a disciple, our identity is connected to a responsibility to make disciples. But look at the end of verse 20. The last half of it says, I am with you always. I am with you. It's interesting that Jesus gives us a commission and he also promises his presence. Now, what we sometimes miss in Matthew chapter 28 is that there are some other passages in the book of Matthew where Jesus gives mandates and he promises his presence. And so there's like a buildup that happens in Matthew chapter 28. And when we get into our third point here in a minute, we're gonna look at those passages. But as we think about working uh, for the king, First we represent him, then we work for him. I want to emphasize just one other passage, and that's from Ephesians chapter 4. And I know that there's so much that could be said here about spiritual gifts and about using your gifts to, uh, uh, to serve the body of Christ and, and, uh, and how we are one body made up of different parts and how we contribute to the whole. There's so, we, we could do a series on that, right? Just in thinking about how to put into practice the spiritual gifts God has given us. But I want to use this passage just to make simply one point. And this is, this is uh, verse 12 of Ephesians 4. It's, it's telling the church leaders to equip the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ. So first of all, we have to ask, who are the saints? Who are they? It's all of us. You know, and sometimes we use the word saints or we think about it of people that lived in the past or people, people that have that identification. Well, the New Testament says we are saints. Just as we are considered royal priests, we are considered saints. 
based upon what Christ has done and achieved for us. So the saints are to be equipped, meaning that they are to be built up, they are to be taught, they are to to be made ready for for doing the work of ministry. And the the outcome of that is to build up the body of Christ. And so, so we see that to be part of the church, to be part of the body of Christ, is really a call for participation, not merely being a spectator of what's happening. And I've been convinced over the years that that sometimes the American church has has created systems that really really encourage spectating and not participating. And Ephesians 4 is one of those passages that says, no, the, the strength of the ministry, the strength of the church is the body of Christ being built up, serving one another together. That sounds to me like a people who are on mission, the people who are building up the body of Christ. Well, let's spend some time on the third point. And this is the one where we are called to watch over. We are to guard and protect the dwelling place of God. And as we said earlier, we saw through the Old Testament where God dwelt. God dwelt with with Adam and Eve in the garden. He dwelt in the tabernacle. He dwelt with with the Israelites in different ways. He showed his presence, right? He he had a place there in the temple where he would dwell, the holy of holies, his presence. And yet it pointed to a time in which his presence would be with his people, with us. And so as we think about the dwelling place of God, we even think about the Great Commission, don't we? I am with you. We're going to see other places where the presence of Christ is seen. And so so as we think about about guarding and protecting, not a garden or a building, a tabernacle or a temple, those places where his presence are, now we see the the call to protect a people. Now, now, Now think about that for just a minute. This means that you and I have a responsibility for one another. You know, all of those one another passages in the New Testament, in fact, Living Water Academy students, they are, they are looking at a one another passage every single Monday, and there's, there's lots of them, that we have a responsibility for each other. Now, as we are part of the body of Christ, we have to understand who exactly are we responsible for? Because when we think about the church of Jesus Christ, oftentimes we, we think about the church universal, right? Of God's people all over everywhere, but, but that, that would be really hard to... to, to take these one another commands and and try to to apply them to to everyone. But when we think about the local church, it's the visible church of Jesus Christ here in our midst. And that when we are part of a local church, when when we come to be covenant members, we are making an agreement about a number of things. One of them being, I'm gonna care for you. I'm gonna seek to build you up. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to seek to hold you close to the Lord. And if, if you stray, I'm going to seek to bring you back. We, we sometimes use the word accountability, right? Well, let me ask you, do you think accountability is something that's needed in the church today? I mean, because we're humans, right? And we can, we can think wrong things or we can do wrong things. And we need that accountability of brothers and sisters in Christ to bring us back in. In fact, I would ask you this. Is that a loving or unloving thing to do? It's loving, right? Now, when we say we believe accountability is important, and we believe that the Bible teaches that we are responsible for one another, it also has a reverse meaning. And that means that the body is also 
responsible for me. It's one thing for me to say, yeah, I'll, I'll give you accountability, <laughs> right? It's another thing when you say, oh, you're going to bring me accountability. But isn't that, isn't that how it works? So we're moving into a topic here where we're going to see what it means to watch over the body. And I'm going I'm to challenge you as a church. In fact, I'm, I'm going to charge you to understand your identity and your responsibility in this very thing, to guard, to protect the dwelling place of God. We said last week that Adam and Eve, they were to be watching over the garden. But what happened in the garden? A tempter came in. A deceiver came in. And what Adam and Eve should have done is they should have thrown the serpent out of the garden, right? That's what they should have done. But instead, they, 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 they listened. And we saw what happened from there. Well, how does, what does that look like in the temple days? of the Old Testament. What were the priests to do? They were supposed to use language like, hey, this is unclean and this is clean, right? They were to make a, a distinction. Well, what about today? How do we do that? How do we, as the body of Christ, guard and protect the dwelling place? You see, it's not up to, to, to a, a priestly group anymore. It's not the elders and pastors of the church. It's the, the people. In fact, we looked at Jeremiah 31, which is speaking of the new covenant. We saw it last week in saying that it was going to look different after the Messiah came because the Messiah was going to put his spirit <coughs> within his people. And they were going to have a knowledge that the people beforehand didn't have. Here's how it's explained in verse 34. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, know the Lord. For they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. This is the Lord's declaration. Again, under the old covenant, people had to go through the priest. In the new covenant, you are the priest. You go straight to the great high priest. And because of that, there are some expectations and responsibilities. Well, let's pick back up with our castaways on the desert island. They decide they want to start a church, right? They've been gathering for worship, but is, but is just having a worship service the same as a church? Are all of those one another responsibilities being fulfilled? How do we know who's in the church and who's out of the church? How do we know who we're to care for, and who we're to, 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 to hold accountable? I mean, can you imagine? Do we have to hold the whole world accountable? That, that doesn't work, does it? It only makes sense in covenant, that's why as we think about church membership here at the Fellowship of Wildwood, it's important because we got to know who's in and who's not. Who are, we, who are we supposed to be providing for and holding accountable? Who can hold us accountable? So it, it brings about a different understanding when we, when we see how a church is to be established. So those on the desert island, they have to make a couple of decisions. The first one is they need to make a decision about what their new church believes, right? Now, we know that not every church believes the same thing. We kind of did a little bit of a, of a tour of that this last spring and summer, didn't we? We found a lot of examples that, that there, are, there are churches that believe things that are, that are not found in the scripture. So, so the new church needs to develop what? A statement of faith. Or you, you might call it a confession to say, this is what we believe. These are our beliefs. And these beliefs need to be based upon the word of God, right? A biblical statement of faith. So that's the first job that, the, that these on the island need to do. Now, the second thing, now that they've described this is the what of what we believe, or this is the what of the gospel, 
Now they need to determine the who of the gospel. So is everybody on the island going to be a church member? Or is there certain criteria? Do, do, do people need to be able to make a confession of faith? So we see the idea of a confession and a confessor. What if you, as this new church, set your, your statement of faith and you have people that come in and say, well, I want to be part of your church too. What do I believe about Jesus? Well, I believe he existed. And I believe he was a good teacher. Well, well no, I don't believe that he was the son of God. And, and no, I, I certainly don't believe that he died for sins. And, and, and nor would I, would I agree that he, that, he, that he rose from the grave. You've got a decision to make, church. Is that person part of the church or not? Do they align with your confession of faith or not? And some of you are kind of, this is uncomfortable, isn't it? Because we live in a world where people say, ah, oh, you know, you shouldn't make those kinds of, of, of judgments. You shouldn't make those kinds of decisions. But I ask you, isn't it important that as a church we know who we are in partnership with, who we are cooperating with, who is representing the message of the church to the world? Are those important things? Then the what of the gospel is important and the who of the gospel is important. Are you feeling the weight of that responsibility? We're going to see today that the church is authorized to determine the what and the who of the gospel, what the gospel is and who the members are. Look back in Matthew chapter 16. We're going to go through this fairly quickly, but I'll point out some passages to you as we go. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is speaking to the disciples and he's wanting to clarify the what of the gospel. And he does that by asking a question says there in the middle of verse 13, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? What do they say about me? Verse 14, they replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now, I know I didn't get that verse on the screen for you, but, but did the people get the answer right? No. So Jesus is asking to clarify, what is the gospel? Who am I? And then he's also saying, who is it that agrees? Who is it that has the answer? Who is it that has that confession? And he makes it more personal. Verse 15, but you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Now, let me ask you, did Peter get the answer right? Yeah, he did. And he also gives us an example of a profession of faith or a statement of faith. This is a confession that he makes. This is the what of the gospel, if you will. And now we're trying to determine, well, who is part of this? Verse 17, Jesus responded, blessed are you, Simon, son of, Bar son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. Verse 18, and I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. Two times in the book of Matthew, Jesus uses the word church. And this is one of them. He says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now look at verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Then he, uh, well, let's just stop right there. 
So Jesus is giving them the keys of the kingdom. Keys sound like authority, don't they? You think about opening and closing, binding and loosing. There's a picture of authority. Jesus is giving them to Peter and saying, whatever you bind, whatever you loose, that'll be happening in heaven. Now, let's think about that for a minute. Think about it in the context of, of someone who's serving as a, as, as, a, as a judge in a courtroom. They are, they are making, they are given the task of rendering a decision based upon not the law that they write, but the law that was given to them. So the disciples aren't being asked to make up the gospel. They're, they're being asked to have, make sure that the confession is in line with what Christ has given. Now, also going back to the courtroom analogy, the, the judge makes a decision about guilt or innocence based on the law as it applies to a particular individual, right? Now, the judge isn't making someone guilty or innocent. He is simply saying, based upon the law, this person is guilty or innocent. And that's what the disciples are being asked to do. They're being asked to understand what the gospel is and to also understand who is it that's affirming it, that's living the gospel. Now, we see this idea given to them in the keys. Now, this idea of the keys of the kingdom brings up a whole other subject because for Catholics, they believe the keys of the kingdom started with Peter and have gone through popes in an unbroken succession, right? They see the authority given that way. There are some in, in the Presbyterian world that see these key, keys that go to the church leaders, that from generation to generation, it's church leaders, it's, it's bishops or presbyters or maybe even elders that hold the keys that make the decisions. But I want us to look over at Matthew chapter 18 and see how these keys are used and to see who it is that's using them. Matthew chapter 18 beginning in verse 15. Now, this is a passage of scripture that, that gives us instruction on how to deal with conflict in the church or what to do if someone sins against us. And we see a three-step process. First, you go to the person. If, if you can't have resolution because of that, you bring two or three witnesses with you, which again connects back to a passage in Deuteronomy that things are established with witnesses. And if that doesn't happen, then you, you take a matter before the church with the goal of reconciliation. Remember that we are ambassadors of reconciliation. That's what, what's, what's being taught here. Um, but if you look at the passage, verses 15 through, through uh, uh, 16 speak of these, of these three steps that are taken. Verse 17, if he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. If he doesn't pay attention to the church, let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. That's just another way of saying, let him be like an unbeliever. That his, his life isn't, isn't matching the profession. Again, the what of the gospel, the who of the gospel. Now, we would still want this person to be, to be evangelized. We want this person to be, to, be, to be brought in to the church in a future date. But for now, we see that that's part of this process for one who has strayed. Look at verse, uh, verse 18. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Wait a minute, didn't we just read these words? These are the keys of the kingdom, and they were given to Peter and the disciples, and now who have they been given to? Who? The church. The church. 
Now, all of a sudden, you, some of you here today, have a responsibility that maybe you're just seeing. Wait a minute. I have a responsibility here of watching over, of caring for, building up, protecting from those who, are, who may be straying and going another path. It's my job, not the pastor, not the elder, not the presbytery, not the bishop, the church, priest kings. Verse 19, again, truly I tell you, if two of you on earth agree about any matter that you pray for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. Now look at verse 20. This is interesting. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, it's the minimum amount it would take to have a church. I am there among them. His presence that we see in the Great Commission, we see right here in Matthew chapter 18, this idea of holding the keys of the kingdom again. This is given, it's stated with the word you in the plural, like you all, okay? You all, us, we have these keys. The same authority that Jesus gave Peter and the apostles in Matthew 16 is now given to every member of this royal priesthood. And it's specifically applied in the church. I mean, think about Matthew 18. How does that work if someone's not able to recognize who is in the church? And so as the New Testament unfolds, we see letters that are written to local congregations, specific people who have a local expression, who are in covenant with one another so that they can guard and protect but I can't guard and protect everyone in Wildwood. We can't do that. We can't guard and protect everyone in St. Louis, but we certainly have a responsibility for those who are in covenant with us. There's some pieces beginning to connect here on the identity and the responsibility. I hope it also shows you why church membership is so important so that we can fulfill the very calling of God in our lives. Because if we try to be a lone ranger just out and, 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 and attending church to church and place to place or, or everything's just online, we're not really co committed to a body, we're our, we are not able to fulfill the calling that Christ has given to us. That's why we have to be committed within a church. Again, the church is authorized to determine the what and the who of the gospel, what the gospel is and who the members are. Again, because of what Christ has commissioned them to do. <clears throat> Whether it is who is being baptized, who is being admitted into church membership, who is being taken off of the church membership role, these are decisions that rest with the church. And whether we are in Matthew chapter 28 or Matthew chapter 18, we see that it is Christ whose presence is with us. And it goes even a step further. Look over at Galatians chapter 1. We're going to see again the what and the who of the gospel. Galatians is a letter that's been written to a local church in Galatia. And look at what Paul writes to them in verse 6. He says, I am amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a what? A different gospel. Folks, do we see today evidence that there are different gospels in the world around us? We spent all of spring and a lot of this summer thinking about what, what these other gospels, these other teachings look like in light of the timeless word of God. 
And so he's saying that there is a different gospel. This means that the church should be identifying the what of the gospel. It's their responsibility. He says, I'm amazed. You're so quickly turning away. Verse seven, not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So according to these verses, who is it that is to make a decision on whether a gospel is true or different? The church, that's right. Keep reading. They're also asked to make a decision on the who of the gospel. Verse eight, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we've preached to you, meaning the established gospel. A curse be on him. As we have said before, I now say again, if anyone, anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, a curse be on him. So again, the church members are now asked to render a decision. First, is this gospel the true one or a different one? Second, is the person that's preaching, are they giving the true gospel or not? And who's making that decision? It's the church. You realize that when I moved to St. Louis, it was a church that issued the call. They made the decision. And listen to me. If you ever find me preaching a gospel that's different than the one right here, you know what your job is? What's your job? Yeah, go ahead and say it. Your job is to fire me. (laughs) Your job is to get together and say, we vote this guy out because he's not preaching the gospel. Now, again, it's not the elder's job to do it. It's not the church staff's job to do it. It's not some Missouri Baptist or Southern Baptist convention person. They have no authority over this church. You know who holds the keys? you. You hold the keys. This is your identity, and this is one of those corresponding responsibilities. Now, there's a whole lot of other responsibilities, but I focus on this one because I believe it's the one that is the most neglected today. And we live in a day where we need to be watching over the doctrine of the church, and we need to be watching over what is being taught and who is coming in and going out of the church. That's why when we have members meetings and we say, here's the update to the church role, you don't have elders somewhere saying, okay, this person's in, this person's out. No, it's not their job. It's your job. It's your job. Have you seen your responsibility in this context before? I I think maybe for some of us, it's like, I'm going to have to really chew on this for a while. I'm going to have to think through this because this this may be something that that you've not really wrestled with. But I hope it makes sense why the church gathers together, why we make decisions together, why when we come together with the ordinances, these are ordinances that identify us as part of a covenant body. When we baptize someone, we have a process that we work through, and you're saying, yes, we, we welcome, we stand with them, we pray for them, we will hold them accountable, and they will do what? They'll hold me accountable. When we take the Lord's Supper together, again, we do it in light of the body. I I, I can't just go to my house and serve the Lord's Supper to my family apart from the church. This is something that's done as a body of believers. It's in that context. And we'll talk about that later in the series, but it just brings back to mind this identity of being a royal priesthood, being part of that, the incredible calling that each of us have been given along with these responsibilities. I hope 
that as we gather together and as we think through what it means to be uh, not just a church member, but a part of the royal priesthood, that we would, we would see these responsibilities in a new light and say, yes, I want to represent Jesus and his gospel. That's what this world needs right now, is a representative of Jesus Christ to be salt and light in a world that is decaying. I want us to say, yes, we want to witness and expand his kingdom as we work, as we use our gifts, as we serve one another. But I also ask you, church family, let's think how, by God's grace and with his strength, how can we guard and protect and watch over one another? both in what is being taught, what we say we believe, but also in how we can assist and encourage one another. In fact, I like the way the Apostle John describes us in Revelation chapter 1. Look at the end of verse 5, and then we'll close. I know I'm, I'm out of time. It says, To him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood and made us a what? a kingdom, priests, to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I want to start, actually, I want to end where I started. And I want to ask, have you, have you been set free from your sins? Because if not, all that I've been talking about today is what's next. Where we begin is by being set free, being forgiven, and then after we are forgiven and we are in Christ, we are then in his family and we have a new identity and we have responsibilities both outside the church and inside the church. And I ask you today, maybe there's some among us or watching online that have not yet placed your faith in Jesus. Today could be the day where you are set free from your sins. Now, wouldn't that be a great day? For someone to say, this is the day I was set free. If you'd like to talk with someone about that, I'll be, I'll be in the lobby. I'd love to talk with you afterwards. I know there's others here that you could speak with as well. But let me also make one other point in my invitation today. Do you feel like this is the church family for you? Do you feel like this is the place that God has brought you? This is a place where people are like-minded and where you can partner together? I would humbly ask you today, would you consider being a covenant member? Would you consider saying, I'm going to drive a stake in the ground and I'm going to be committed both to my identity and my responsibility, including I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to do my part in the fellowship of Wildwood and I'm going to guard and protect and watch over and I'm going to accept that others are going to come into my life and guard and protect and watch over. Can I ask you today, is that what it looks like the New Testament pattern is meant for the church? Do you see how that, those pieces connect? Maybe today you've got a decision to make. Maybe the Lord is at work in guiding you. And I simply want to offer those two questions as a closing invitation. Would you bow with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, that it is alive, that it is sharper than any two-edged sword that it comes and it, it convicts and it guides and it helps us to understand both our place in this world as well as our place in you and in your body and in the church. So God, I pray that you will take what we have looked at over the last two weeks.
we see what it means to be a kingdom of priests. Lord, may we not take this identity lightly. And may we not take these responsibilities lightly. But Lord, may this be a day where commitments are made. And I pray especially, Lord, for anyone that's with us that does not yet know you as Savior. May this be the day of salvation for them. And Lord, for those who who are in Christ and are, 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 are identifying as followers of Christ, will you help each of us to see the response, the God-given responsibilities that we have. And by your grace and by your spirit, may we be found faithful to you and to one another. For we pray this now in the mighty name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, the head of our church, we pray this in his name and all of God's people said.